Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is studio guitarist Tim Pierce. First of all, some news on the publishing side of things. Ed Sheeran has been sued by the Marvin Gaye estate over his 2014 hit, Thinking Out Loud. The Marvin Gaye estate thinks that Marvin's big hit, Let's Get It On, was plagiarized by Ed Sheeran. So not only is Ed Sheeran involved in this, it's Sony ATV Publishing and Atlantic Records. There's a lot of big entities involved, and this has the potential to really rock the music publishing business. Yes, it's been rocked already, thanks to the Marvin Gaye estate already suing Pharrell and Robin Thicke over their Blurred Lines hit, which, of course, the Marvin Gaye estate won and then won on the appeal. No one in the music publishing business, no one in the music business thought that that would happen. Because when you listen to both songs, there's a similarity in feel, but there's not too much of a similarity in terms of the rest of the music. And to some degree, that's the way it is here as well. There's a little bit of the feel that you can hear, but boy, you put both songs next to one another, and they don't sound like the same song, at least to me. That being said, a judge ruled that there's substantial similarities between both works, and as a result, the ramifications can be really disastrous here. In terms of if this wins, it's going to be really hard to write a new song without someone suing you. Now, obviously, if you don't have a hit, no one's going to sue you, but as soon as the song starts to make money, you're going to have people come out of the woodwork to sue you over it. Just imagine all of the blues songs ever written. (laughs) 12-bar blues. Now, what's the difference between many of those? Well, there's not much. And in many cases, you have that with pop songs. And I would venture to say that Let's Get It On is probably a derivative of any number of songs that came before it as well. So this is actually going down a rabbit hole that is going to be good for the music business in the long run. But let's see what happens. Maybe we'll have a judge and jury that will actually decide in favor of Ed Sheeran. He can certainly afford it, but it's not his pocketbook that we're worried about. We're worried about the ramifications for the rest of the publishing industry. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, in the audio side of things, Pioneer Audio was acquired for $904 million. Bearing Private Equity Asia, based out of Hong Kong, bought Pioneer Audio, which already was part-owned by Sharp, 9%, and Honda, which owned 4%. Now, the interesting thing is Pioneer Audio has been around for a really long time. And Pioneer has been a pioneer when it comes to consumer audio. And they played a role in the development of cable television, Laserdisc, car CD players, DVD and the DVD-R, plasma display, and even the new OLEDs that are being used on smartphones. So this was a company that really had a history and a history of innovation. What happened was it basically ran out of steam because not many people do retrofits for car audio like they used to. 
So as a result, the business has really cratered. Already, Pioneer is somewhat out of the rest of the consumer audio business, especially on the television side, for instance. They stopped making TVs a few years ago. If you're wondering what's going to happen to Pioneer DJ, that actually was spun off three or four years ago to KKR, another private equity company. If that might sound familiar, KKR is one of the owners of the new Gibson So anyway, Pioneer is going to cut about 2,500 people and replace the board and see if they can turn it around. So this is just another proud audio name that is going through some turbulent times. Even though it doesn't really hit us in the pro audio section or the musical instrument sector, in fact, we find that it's still consumer audio and it's been a company of innovation. So let's see if it can be saved. My guest today is one of the most popular and prolific session guitar players in Los Angeles, and that's Tim Pierce. Tim has a client list that's a mile long that includes superstars like Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, Rod Stewart, Don Henley, Faith Hill, Dave Matthews Band, Miley Cyrus, and many, many more. Tim also has an excellent online guitar masterclass that includes over 100 hours and 1,000 videos with new content added every month. In this interview, we talked about the thing that has kept Tim busy even during the down years in the business, the best benefit of having a home studio, the sound of amp simulators, his favorite instruments, and much, much more. Tim and I spoke via Skype from a studio in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning and how you got in the business. I know you're from Albuquerque, and I would bet that a lot of people from Albuquerque don't even make a dent in the music business. One notable person from Albuquerque was Randy Castillo. He played with Ozzy Osbourne. But no, there were not a lot of uh, guys from Albuquerque who came out here and had careers. It's true. Okay, so how did you get started then? Um, I drove out here with uh, my mom's car. She donated her car to me, which was great. And I had a little bit of cash. And I knew one guy who got me on a couple of gigs The thing about when I moved here at the end of 1979, the music business was very robust. It was a huge infrastructure, tons of people in offices, buildings, tons of money being spent on development. So there were gigs everywhere for musicians and musicians everywhere. Um, So I met one guitar player. uh, I had one contact and he hooked me up with one gig. And then it was kind of like a tree. You know, uh, one branch turns into three branches. One guy recommends you to three other guys. And I was able to get started uh, when I first moved here, it was so intimidating. I woke up and thought, there's no way I can ever be part of this. But after about two months, began to feel a little better. And I think, I think I started working after about three months, just a little bit. Just there was so much work for musicians. Um, a lot of showcases, a lot of development, like I said. And the first record I did was for a guy named Mike Chapman. Uh, the band was called Shandy. And at that point, Mike Chapman and Nikki Chin had a really long string of hits yeah. uh, with different artists, Nick Gilder and um, s- some other people. Let me think. Uh, Pat Benatar. Think of all- Pat Benatar, yeah. So they had tons of number one hits and they started a record company called Dreamland and Shandy was on Dreamland. So I got kind of into the record making thing pretty quickly. Uh, and then the real boost for me came at age 23 after I'd been here two years. I got to play on a Rick Springfield record. I got to play on a Bon Jovi record and a John Waite record, kind of all in the same six-month period. And I ended up touring with Rick for five or six years after that. Um, so at 23, I actually got 
I got some really good gigs just from being here and meeting people and, and getting connected. Let's go back to Albuquerque for a second. I assume that you grew up playing in bands, but there comes a point in time where you have to make that decision that I've outgrown my area and I'm going to go for the big time here. So how did that happen for you? Is that something where just one day it clicked for you or was it coming on for a long time? For a long time. It, it comes out of frustration when you, you know, I, I was pretty dedicated to the guitar and I just saw people beginning their careers and I realized I needed to actually go where there were real careers. And I remember playing in a bar and watching people come and go and and thinking, you know, they're actually starting their lives and I'm just playing in this bar and I don't want to stay here. So, you know, the thing about it, when I... I was young enough to where I could come out here. I, I knew that if I came out here and it didn't work, I could have gone back and started over. So, you know, at age 20, when I decided to do it right before I turned 21, uh, you know that you, you could try and if it didn't work out, you could come back home. So that was always in my back pocket, but it was very, very frustrating being in Albuquerque, especially from age 17, 18, 19, 20, and just feeling like uh, I was going nowhere. So, yeah, a lot of frustration being in a small town. Okay, so then you come out here and eventually you go on the road with Rick Springfield. When you decided not to do that any longer, did you have a hard time breaking back into session work? Well, when I toured with Rick, it was really nice because he used me on all the records. And when we would come home from the tours, I was able to do studio work that I was getting better at. I wasn't the, my, some of my skills. I wasn't the most consistent player in the studio. That came a little later. But what happened was Rick decided to take some time off. He did four world tours, which I did with him, all of them. And he decided he, he needed to take time off. So I basically planted my feet and I started doing publishing demos with people. So from about 1987 to 1990, I would drive around town and do uh, a, songs for songwriters. And it was very difficult because they were very demanding but it taught me how to be a consistent player and come up with parts and sounds immediately. There were days when I would go to three different places and do three different songs for three different sets of writers. These were songwriters. And uh, it, it was my training ground. Uh, it didn't pay very much, but I was able to survive doing it. And that set me up for around 1990 when I actually started to do records. The thing that actually got me boosted was i played on a crowded house record in the late 80s and the song don't dream it's over was on that record and yeah. that was a favorite of songwriters and producers and artists and so i think that had a lot to do in the late 80s with me actually gaining ground and beginning to be you know beginning to do records right around 1990 now you said that you weren't the most consistent player is that creatively you're talking about or or technically I was obsessed with lead guitar as a youngster. <laughs> so when I moved here, it was all about rhythm guitar. And so I it was kind of on the job training for me. But studio work is very demanding and you really have to instantly come up with whatever is required. And so there were people like Steve Lukather who were able to do that at age 20 because they had you know, just gotten it together earlier. But particularly with coming up with parts and sounds immediately, um, that is something that, that took me, you know, my twenties to acquire. That's all. Um, consistency in the studio 
is a primary requirement. And you, you really, if somebody rejects a part that you think of, you have to offer them something else. Keep offering them parts and sounds until, um, you know, they find something they like. So it's, it's demanding. Now, I think I read something about you somewhere that, where you said that when you began to do more session work, you decided to concentrate more on being a pop guitar player rather than doing any kind of session that came along. Is that true? No. Okay. So, yeah, that's not, yeah, that's not a, that's not a, an accurate quote. Okay. So then you did movies and everything else and anything that came your way. I actually spent the nineties doing sessions seven days a week. Uh, and it, it was just because I did take every gig I was offered. I still did demos for songwriters. I remember going to Gina Shock's house from the Go-Go's all the time, even when I was doing records with people who had big names. Part of what has sustained me is that I always held on to people who were in the middle. So the day after I did a Bruce Springsteen record, I was at Tom Whitlock's house doing a song demo. And Tom was a songwriter. He had some success. But just to picture this, I was at you know, a big studio on a Thursday working with Bruce Springsteen on his album, Human Touch. And the next day I was in Tom Whitlock's bedroom in his house doing a demo. And that was my career. I held on to all the people who were just nice to me and loyal to me. And I also never really trusted uh, Life at the Top because it was somewhat fickle. A lot of musicians, when they got to the point where they were doing just records with known artists, they would, they would not do that demo work anymore. But I always held on to those people. And the thing that, that that did for me is when the record business changed in the early 2000s, I still had a group of independent clients that I was actually growing. People who did self-funded stuff, people who did stuff for Disney theme parks, people who did you know demos for their daughters and sons, all manner of independent people. I was growing a clientele like that even when I was doing all of the records where you, know, you had a name and a high profile. Um, and that kind of saved me uh, in the last you know, 15 years because those people actually became where all the work was. I mean, those are the people who kept working when the record business changed. So I did sessions, high-profile sessions, you know, for Tina Turner and Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson and Madonna and all these people. But I always held on to people you've never heard of because I kind of trusted that they were going to be there no matter what. And indeed, that became the case. It took a decade or so for that to happen, but those people actually fortified me um, in the early 2000s and, and even now. And we both know of many great players who relied on sessions for a long time that fell upon some really fallow times when the bottom dropped out, so to speak. So you're lucky that you chose the path you did. Well, I was just trying to, to protect myself, and it ended up protecting me for a different reason, because the business changed. I just thought you know, I wouldn't be able to sustain a, a career at the top because I didn't trust show business, as it were. <laughs> but it, it show business actually kind of you know, changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so all right. It was good. It was good. Then one of the transitions is now you do most of your sessions in your own studio, right? I try. I... I in the early 2000s, I did set up a home studio, and I got more and more people to start using it. I remember I was at the record plant working with a guy named Alex Band. He was in a band called The Calling, and they had one really big hit. And I was doing a solo record, and Tal Hertzberg, who's no longer with us, um, looked up at me from the huge console, the SSL, uh, at, at the record plant. And he looked up at me and said, yeah, we're going to your house next week for the overdubs. 
And I realized at that moment that what I was doing at home was of the same quality uh, as what we were doing in big studios. And for guitar, it doesn't take that much. Uh, you know, for a drummer, they have to buy a lot more micros. They have to have a room that sounds good. But for a guitar player, you can you can get a, a, a smaller complement of stuff and, and get the same sounds you get in a big studio. So, yeah, I, it was a transition that helped me because I was able to cut costs for people. No longer were they... Uh, no longer did they have to, to uh, you know, rent a studio or spend money on cartage. But the greatest benefit to having a home studio is scheduling because there's no middlemen and no middle people. And you're just dealing with one person generally, a producer or an artist or one group of people. And the benefit for me in that is that I could actually bump people and move them around like I was landing planes at an airport. So if somebody booked me on Thursday and they couldn't move that session, let's say it was a Disney session in Hollywood at a studio or something, or some record date that couldn't be moved, I could take a client who was booked on Thursday and say, hey, I have to bump you to Friday because it was just me and that client working in my studio. So it allowed me to not lose work having the home studio because most of the people who come here are flexible enough to come a day earlier or a day later. Some people will wait a week because guitar happens uh, you know, at multiple points in the process, if you're doing bass and drums, they generally happen at the beginning, but the guitar can happen at any point in the process in the middle. So it allowed me to, to not lose work having the home studio. The other benefits for me are anytime I went to a studio, I had to build a large guitar rig. I had to show up with the cartridge, get everything working properly, get everything mic'd properly with the engineer. And what happens here is that within five or 10 minutes, depending on if we, you know, get coffee or whatever from the kitchen, we're recording because everything's set up and ready to go. They just plug in their hard drive, or if they've sent me the files, the files are here. Now, what I do try and do is make sure that people are here when I record, because I've never been a fan of recording alone. I need the enthusiasm of having the client here. I also need them to be responsible for the choices we make. I don't want to spend a half an hour on something that they don't like if they're not here. I want that half hour to be exactly what they want. So they share responsibility in the actual, you know, parts and sounds that we're coming up with. And that way they don't waste money. I don't waste time. And, and, and everybody, I think we get the right stuff with a lot more enthusiasm and energy. Well, tell me about your studio then. How did you decide on building it? Well, I, I never wanted a traditional studio because I spent decades in rooms that by their nature had no windows, you know, just for soundproofing and security. So I, I wanted to just, what I did in both houses that have had my studio was in Sherman Oaks for 15 years and now this one, they have windows and natural light. And I just took a big room and set up the gear. The really unique thing about my studio is it, had, is that it has mirrored stations. I look at Pro Tools and I have monitors in front of me. And then the client has Pro Tools and they have monitors in front of them and we face each other. You can see it online, but it's just the same way you and I are facing each other now. Um, I have my monitors, they have their monitors, I have my Pro Tools, they have their Pro Tools. So I can tell how they're reacting to what I'm playing in real time. I can tell if the artist is getting bored sitting behind them. I can do everything I need to do to keep everybody's enthusiasm and confidence up because I'm staring at them and they're staring at me. Also, if we come to a point where I want to change something, sometimes it's easier just for me to do it than to tell them. So if I want to do a punch, sometimes just I'll do it instead of them. Uh, or if I, I don't want to, you know, engineering and playing at the same time are fatiguing. So if I want them to run it, I can ask them to run it. There's a lot of benefits to looking people straight in the eye. And also all the stopping and starting is quicker because sometimes people stop slower than I do. And all these five second um, gains in time add up in a three hour session. So 
it just saves me five and 10 and 15 and 20 seconds repeatedly yeah. in the process. I can, I can, I can have the maximum momentum because, uh, I can read the room constantly and I can, I can run pro tools. I can punch in, I can punch out. I can say, I'm looking at the bar numbers. I can say at bar 23, let's do something different. So the communication gets better. Everything is better because we face each other. That's brilliant. Actually. I've never heard of anybody doing that, but it makes so much sense. Well, the, the only drawback is there's a little pollution in their monitors from the back of my monitors and vice versa. So it's not the ideal monitoring situation. Jack Joseph Quigg comes here occasionally, and he recommended that I get tiny Genelec speakers to, to solve that. And I did, and it did solve it. So in front of me, I have baby Genelecs, and then the clients have these big Atom S3As. So... They don't get much backwash from my speakers. I get a little from them, but I, I don't, you know, I'm not the client, so I can handle it. But that's, you know, I expected more people to do something like this after I did it, just because it worked so well for me immediately. But people are, are so attached to traditional monitoring in their rooms that they, they never end up doing this. Uh, it's just for me, it's just, I can get maximum momentum. And then I have everything really close to me. So it's like an airplane cockpit. And, uh, so I can reach everything very quickly and everything's set up and ready to go. But it's, it's more the staring people straight in the eyes and, and shaving off all these little five second, uh, time intervals. Well, it sounds like efficiency is really important to you. And I could see why that's one of the things that bugs me about sessions is the fact that when things go slow, they go slow and constantly you want to speed things up. As you say, every five or 10 seconds really makes a difference over the course of a day. Well, yeah, and it's not that efficiency is, you know, it, as human beings, as we get more efficient, it takes a lot of the pleasure of life away. So that, that's one of the problems with modern society is that we, you know, we've become so efficient that it's just, you know, the powers that be want us to work more and more and more, or we, or we push ourselves to work more and more and more. But the thing is, I don't, I don't want to do sessions 10, 12 hours a day anymore, partly because I have my web, web business, which we'll get to, but... It's partly the budget limitations. Because people have less money to spend, I want to keep my rate up and I want to get give them everything they want, but they can't spend what they used to spend. So a lot of the, the songs I do, I turn them around in an hour or 90 minutes or two hours. And I want to get a certain rate for that so it's worth my time. So I really have to try and give them as much as possible. Now, if we don't get something right, they can always come back. I mean, it's always an open door, you know, Um but if you if you move fast, you tend to get a lot of very inspired stuff. The studio, I heard somebody say the hardest thing in the studio is to push up one trader and get a sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it does see there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of hooking stuff up. Uh, and then if you're tracking, you know, you're, you're working on the drums and the bass and the organ, everything at the same time. So it is efficient, but in my particular case, that creates a scenario where I can keep my rate, I can give them everything they want, they can keep their spend affordable and it creates uh, a lot of a lot of high energy so but like i say you know may, you might not get everything totally right but they could always come back for an hour or they can always you know at that point i'm happy to add an acoustic guitar or change the solo or whatever if they want to you know yeah you know if you, they want me to spend another half hour it's easy there's no the song is never done until you know they ship it so it's always an open door 
Okay, let's talk gear for a second, because I'm really curious of where you come down on uh, guitar simulators and uh, modeling amps. That stuff gets better all the time. Um, I owned the Axe Effects for a while because I wanted to check it out, and I, I loved it, but I knew that the, the, you know they would come out with a new one eventually, so I did sell it. Uh, and then I did get the Kemper from Kemper, and I've used that a lot. Um, the Axe Effects is great. It's a more robust engine. But the Kemper works great also, and that's a great tool to take into a TV composer's studio. And, and you know, you set it up and you have a sound immediately, and it's right in your face. You know, if I can be most critical, all of these devices do sound like the pod we used to use in that the top end is always a little hashy and artificial. And as you overdub guitars and do more guitars, you tend to hear that more and more. That being said, it's better than it's ever been, and it's getting better all the time. And it's the way of the future. Uh, these are great tools. I love taking the Kemper into a room, plugging it in, getting a sound immediately. Uh, you know, any direct sound is right in your face. Yeah. And for guitar, that can be a real benefit. However, nothing uh, digital now at this point sounds as good as my microphones and speakers and mic pre's and the, uh, you know, the, the, the chain that I have. It's really the, the top end. Now, one of the things that's happened is so many, so many people here top end on YouTube uh, that's degraded, when they hear a hashy top end, they interpret that as being a modern sound. So when you put up the Kemper and the top end is a little hashy, that can be interpreted by people as a modern sound because they listen on YouTube and distorted guitars on YouTube have actually suffered the most. And that's where a beautiful distorted guitar gets kind of pixelated and hashy. Yeah. And so... That's one of the reasons uh, uh, a Kemper or a digital modeling guitar sound kind of sounds modern is because we're used to hearing Hashi Top End on our end user, you know, platforms. I was wondering how that would work with you because people come to you expecting a certain sound and I'm kind of wondering if they'd feel cheated if you were to use a modeler rather than your gear. I might, I might use a modeler, you know, it, it depends. I mean, most... Like Matt Serletic came over here recently and he wanted to use the Kemper because he's always trying to sound completely up to date. And it didn't matter that we were in my room with all my amps and speakers. I've worked with Matt for so long that he, he just wanted a certain thing. We used both. So, so that's the answer. I mean, it's almost like an effect. It's like you, you use it as an effect. But people come here really expecting the real sounds and they, they really value the real sounds, even, even some of the younger people. Um, and then a lot of people don't care where the sound comes from. They just want the part and the sound. I mean, one of the things about Trevor Horn, I used to work with Trevor Horn all the time for about 15 years and Trevor always had huge, huge budgets, but he had no attachment to the gear. He didn't care what you brought or what you were using or how much it costed. And um, I mean, most people who make music at a certain point, they don't care how the sound is generated. And that's really liberating because it used to be in the 90s, you had to have, you know, vintage boxes and, you know, vintage, a vintage Jaguar and a vintage Rickenbacker and all that stuff. And one of the, it's very liberating now just to have people want sounds and not really care how those sounds were generated. That's how Trevor always was. That's certainly how Matt was when he showed up here last year to do, do something. He wanted to sound modern. And, it's almost like you're confusing the transportation with the destination. Like when somebody comes to 
to your house, you don't care what brought them there. You just care that they're there. And it's more more that way with music now. People just want to experience a sound and they don't care how you got it. But because I do most of my work at home and people do come here, I have the benefit of a stadium loud cabinet in a, in a vault in my garage or a series of cabinets that are getting the real guitar sounds, you know, pumping through the real microphones and the real mic pre's and really good converters. And I can hear the difference. Um, the modelers are getting better. It's the way of the future. You know, every three to five years, it's going to be a new level of, of, you know, yeah. <laughs> greatness from artificial sounds. Okay. That being said, then what are your favorite instruments? Do you, do you have one or two that going to be your favorite that you want to play no matter what? Well, uh, I use a lot of boutique guitars when I do sessions because they stay in tune. I have a number of Les Pauls and Gibson's, the G string generally, I have trouble keeping the G-string in tune um, just because the headstock, if you look at a Gibson headstock, there's a turn at the nut. And there's lots of ways to solve that turn. But boutique guitars like um, the, the ones that Paul Reed Smith makes or Tom Anderson or Michael Tuttle, they've solved this problem because they they don't have the um, the headstock that requires the turn. you know. Yeah. And so... I generally use boutique guitars a lot, uh, and Fenders don't have that problem either because it's a straight string pull. Yeah. I generally use boutique guitars when I'm moving fast at home. Like I'll use Les, Les Paul substitutes, which would be a PRS or uh, one of my boutique builders, so that I can play in tune. The acoustic guitars I have, I've just acquired over time. It, it's almost like you have to to just wait for good acoustic guitars to come along because you can't. They're hard to find. So. I have some vintage old acoustics that are great, an old National, a couple of old Gibsons, an old Martin. And then I have a Larave that's about 20 years old that's a great, more modern-sounding guitar. So it really, they're just tools to me. Uh, lately, I've been on a hunt for ES-335s. I spent the last decade trying to find a good ES-335, and I've gone through a number of them, traded them back, and now I finally have a couple of good vintage ES-335s. One's a 62, one's a 67. They're both players that have been de devalued by modifications, but those modifications make them better recording instruments. They have refrets, and the stuff has been upgraded. The 62 didn't have original pickups, so I got, a, you know, got it for like half price. And, and then I have a new Joe Bonamassa 335 that has got the vintage aesthetic. So I, a lot of the newer guitars I have have the vintage aesthetic, mm. and that makes them, to me... It, as good as vintage guitars. Uh, a lot of people would argue that point, but I really like new guitars just because they play so well and the necks are in perfect shape. I'm looking right now at a 58 Gretsch. It's one of my oldest guitars at Fire Glow. That sounds amazing. has Diamond pickups. I have a Duesenberg, Mike Campbell model, you know, old Fender Jaguar, uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I, have, I have a lot of guitars like most you know, most recording musicians have a lot of instruments and yeah. I'm no exception. You know? So when you say favorites, it's it just depends on the, the task at hand yeah i get and it. that that really could could be anything sometimes a guitar that's hard to play or a little rough around the edges will make me rough around the edges which is better because i tend you know as you do this for a living you, you become more polished so if i pick up a guitar that i have to fight like i have some of these cheaper japanese guitars from the 60s and it makes me uh a less polished guitar player and that's that can be great in certain situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's get to your master class that you're doing online. So how did that come about? Well, in 
2009, um, I was talking to Greg Bissonette, and he told me about Mike from Mike's Drum Lessons. And Mike had a big business up north teaching with online video content. And I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do after this session wave you know, hits the shore and dissipates? I, I was still very busy. I still am busy. I still do sessions just about every day. I keep the hours short, and I don't take every session anymore, partly because the web business is actually a better bet for the future because, uh, I mean, I'll go back to your question, but the great thing about the web business is it's a product that I sell to customers rather than a service that I provide clients. And nobody knows better than how this works than you do. Yeah. Nobody knows better how this works than you do. But I was in client service my whole life. There were royalties attached to it, but I had to be in the chair. And I still do for clients. I had to be, you know, I got paid by the hour, by the day, and I had to be there to earn the money. Well, this is something that earns money whether I'm working or not. You do the work, but you do it on your own terms and your own time. And then it's a product that can sell to customers and it can also sell in multiples. So you know, if I market it better, I can sell 10, 10 times as many, you know? Yeah. So that's the next challenge is to market it more or two, at least two times as many, whatever you can actually, you can, it's, it scales, you know, you know, the yeah. word it, it scales where client service doesn't really scale. So let me go back to your question. In 2009, Greg Bissonette told me about Mike from Mike's drum lessons. And when we realized what his business was earning every month, I thought, okay, I thought I was going to have to teach privately at the end of this run, but I can actually create a bigger business than the session business by emulating these guys. In 2009, I started making bad films. I hired a web guy and I lost money for a number of years because I've never edited film. I hired a guy to edit and put stuff out on YouTube. And I, after a couple of years of just bad filmmaking, I started making YouTube videos. So that was probably in 2000. 12 or 13 and i built a business i built a, a following on youtube i didn't monetize I, I spent a lot of money every every year just just trying to to do youtube and then i finally monetized three years ago and by that time i had an email list of guitar players and a following on youtube and i was able to create a business immediately um I, at the moment we monetized it it became a a successful small business at the very moment we monetized and yeah. now i have i have five employees i have a full-time film editor two part-time film editors i have a webmaster and then i have a guy who does tablature who's in italy who's a, a dear friend of mine at this point so uh there is a spend on the business every month and it's substantial but i always i always turn a profit every month and uh it's it's become the love of my life. I, I just I love doing it. I love making this video content. The master class, I started it with a hundred videos and ten hours of content, and now it's up to a thousand videos and a hundred hours of content because I add to it all the time. Mm -hmm. So the customer who buys in, the later they buy in, the more they start with. And so I'm just gonna keep building it and um and then I do products that are downloadable with Red Papa that you can buy on his website that are smaller just did downloadable courses. But when I, going back to your question, in 2009, when I found out about Marty Schwartz and Mike's drum lessons and the, the corollary on basis, Scott Devine in the UK, these, these guys are seven-figure businesses. You know, It's hard work and they, they have to take care of a lot of people. I, I do customer service every day. Yeah. Somebody has a password problem or a credit card problem, I immediately send them a nice email. I, I caught somebody within five minutes today. Sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's a couple of hours, but every waking hour, 
if somebody has a problem with a password or their credit card, I send them a nice email. I forward it to Mary, and she does the customer service quickly also. So it, it, it requires it, – there's a lot of responsibility, but it's, it's allowed me to only do the sessions I want to do and not – not break all my promises to my wife every weekend, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's been great. And, and it's a business that can grow, you know, it's, it's really a nice thing. Um, because I, I've been, I did sessions for 35 years and like I said, I still do them, but it's, you know, it's not something that's going to last forever. And, and I don't want it to last forever. I want it to be, I want to do the ones that I like to do and the, the you know, the fun ones. <laughs> well, that's exactly what happened to me in that I started to do the online courses and it allowed me to take a step back. And now I do one or two projects a year and I'm perfectly happy with that. It's enough for me to keep in touch, but yet I don't necessarily worry about making a lot of money. Just having fun is more important because there's other things. No. And I, I watched you do this and I know it's, it's, you know, I, I knew you were doing this and I've seen, I've seen your, your stuff on Facebook and I've seen, I've seen kind of your advertisements. I never bought any of your products, but I knew this is something that you, you were adept at and you had done. And, and the, the, the great thing about it, it does give you the freedom to be an artist. And as you know, those of us who are in the recording business, we got hit the hardest by the absence of budgets. I mean, it's, uh, you know, mm -hmm celebrities and live musicians can go out and tour and play but those of us who who made our living recording we got hit the hardest so for you and i it's nice to be able to do stuff on your terms for the yeah. love of it and i bet that the projects that you do you feel like an artist when you're doing them. oh i feel great yeah yeah so it, yeah it, i can't say enough about this it took me a while to get into it and we can talk about that a little later because there was a an interesting path to it but I'm so happy to be here. And like you, I do customer service every day. And, and that's fine. There you go. <laughs> don't, don't mind that's it fine. at all. Yeah. I don't either. I don't mind it one bit. Last question for you then. What's the best piece of business advice that you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Okay. I, I can tell you what I've learned along the way. I mean, it, you know, entertainment is a difficult business. The su supply and demand is always in favor of the people that are hiring you. And there are a lot of unfair situations you get in because they do have the power. And, and there's a lot of people angling for the work that they provide people. who, who and, and I work with nice people and there are a lot of nice people out there. And even nice people, they'll do one thing that, that might be hard on, on you when you go to work for them is they might change the schedule. And the classic thing for a hired musician or singer is... You take a gig, and then you turn down another gig, and then they cancel that first gig, and they apologize, and then you've lost both of them. Yeah. And that that's a difficult thing. So that that's something I would I would I actually take the same liberty that my employers take that when when I take a gig, and it isn't right for me, I feel no shame in backing out of that gig as long as I make sure that they get somebody else that'll cover it to their satisfaction. And I'll help them do that if we're close to the actual deadline. But if it's two months out, I just turned down something that was two months out and I took the gig and for a week I kept it. And then I realized it wasn't going to work well for me schedule wise. I could have still done it, but it would have put a lot of pressure and stress and made my other gigs suffer because of it. And so I backed out of it. And of course the guy was disappointed and Maybe he was even mad, but that's okay because they do that all the time and they don't do it with any particular malice or whatever, but maybe they're 
their schedule changes because they're, you know, whatever people they're working with change on their end. Maybe the people are in Brazil or the, the, the studio bumps them or, you know, there's a lot of reasons why good people will change the schedule. So you don't have to be mad at them. But I take some of the same liberties employers take with me. And I feel no, no problem with that. Um, so you actually, in this game, you're responsible for assessing your own worth. And you have to be able to walk away from stuff. You have to be able to stand your ground. You have to be able to, because I read a great book by a woman named Linda Opes. She was a, a film producer. And she said, you turn every employer into a parent. And it's really true. So you have to be very careful that you don't put yourself in a bad position because that, it, it, and they play with that. It happens almost automatically. You know, they, they take a lot of advantages uh, with scheduling or with fees or with, you know, the hours might stretch. You have to figure out what your boundaries are. So uh, I'd never be afraid to set boundaries. And I have a kid who's, who's a friend of mine who's starting out as a guitar player. And he told me yesterday that he's listening to a lot of, uh, you know, audiobooks on business. And I said, that's so great because it'll lift you out of any of these pitfalls that the auditioning or struggling musician or actor or singer get into because supply and demand is so weighted in your employer's favor. So I would say find boundaries, stick to them, and be aware of how other businesses function. I mean, in other businesses, I have a friend who's in the internet business, and when he hires an employee, they show up. The employee might ask for 120 grand a year plus these benefits, plus these days off, plus this vacation. They might settle at 108 grand a year with these benefits and these days off and this vacation and like that. So you have to remember how other businesses function. Employees, people who work for these entities are, oh, and they get stock options too. They get, you know, profit sharing after three years. There's all kinds of stuff in it. The, the employee is valued. Now in, sh in show business, it doesn't quite work that way. But if you're aware of how other businesses work, you can actually remember how valuable you are, create boundaries, ask for more, and and be able to walk away from stuff. Now, it's tricky because you do have to pay your bills, but it's great to be able to say no to somebody and and be okay with never working with that person again if need be. I mean, that's really what you want to get to. You want to get to the point where you can actually say, no, I, I, you know, I can shut this door. There are other doors I can walk through. You can find out more about Tim and his courses at timpierceguitar.com. That's timpierceguitar, one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or Go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and now on Spotify. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.